The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. SCP-4700 Orkney Rising Mythology and SCP often coincide as authors look to various bits of real-world folklore and imagine how these elements might function if brought into the modern day and forced to contend with organizations such as the Foundation. This isn't surprising, as mythological elements tend to be supernatural in some sense, and in a world filled with anomalous phenomena, it makes sense that some of these things would pass into folklore. SCP-4700 concerns a specific subsect of folklore belonging to Orkney, a chain of islands in the Northern Isles of Scotland that have long held some tales and beliefs focused around the water. It's also a sequel to SCP-3700, which I covered recently in my More Aquatic SCPs video, although knowledge of that one is not strictly required for this one. With that said, let's dive in. First off, a little recap of SCP-3700 for those that missed it. SCP-3700 revolved around two massive aquatic entities that would occasionally manifest in an area in the North Sea. When they would manifest, they would fight with one another, and depending on the victor, different anomalous effects would occur within the area. If the friendly, large lobster entity would win, mostly good things would occur, such as the cessation of storms and increased crop yields for the next six months. If the other entity won, resembling a ray-finned fish, generally bad things would occur, such as Category 5 hurricanes, and it wouldn't demanifest, but would instead attack anyone in the area. Due to this, the Foundation decided to step in and help out the first entity to make sure it won every time. Unfortunately, this help led to the first entity becoming weaker over time, and the second entity growing stronger, until eventually they had one last great battle. This battle, which the Foundation was involved in, resulted in the deaths of both of the entities. In the aftermath, the task force there picked up unusual levels of gamma radiation, the appearance of four large yellow orbs underwater, and a sonar contact for some sort of metallic structure five kilometers down. The Foundation approved the task force to deploy submersibles and explore the depths, which is where SCP-4700 comes in. The diving teams proceed to descend for 10 kilometers, rather than 5, due to the anomalous nature of the depth in the area. They eventually reach the bottom, where they begin moving forward, although their visibility is severely reduced due to a large cloud of silt and sand. They spot a large number of shipwrecks at the bottom from a variety of historical periods, along with skeletal remains of several large, unidentified species. 
The teams continue towards the source of the sonar ping, with one submersible's camera picking up small, dark shapes moving through the debris. After approximately 30 minutes, all of their cameras pick up the image of a large humanoid hand moving across the ocean floor, the rest of its limb obscured by the cloud of debris. They bravely continue on, seeing four round sources of yellow light visible in the cloud, until they finally exit part of the debris cloud. They emerge into a dome of clear water near the ocean bed, with turbulence shaking the submersibles as they pass through some sort of barely visible membrane in the water. In this dome, they discover what is later labeled SCP-4700-1. 4700-1 is a large vessel resembling a large species of hermit crab. At its broadest point, it is approximately 5 kilometers in width, or over 3 miles, and its highest point is approximately 3 kilometers, so it's a big vehicle. The vessel appears to be somewhat ruined, with a 50 meter large hole in its side, and part of it seems to be completely inert. There are proto-Nordic runes visible across the surface, with the ones on the front half unlit, while the ones on the back half are visibly glowing. As the subs draw closer for inspection, the cameras experience significant turbulence, and a number of blue streaks of light are visible. Footage and communication from two of the three subs quickly cease, while the footage from the other sub is obscured with static with numerous dark shapes resembling large ocean fauna vaguely visible. The sub manages to avoid the entities for around a minute before its feed also goes dark. Following this, armed task forces were briefed and prepared for the neutralization of potential hostile entities and the boarding of the massive sea vessel. Three hours later, Three squadrons of CTF Delta-7, spell slingers, were sent down to deal with the situation. Just prior to launch, however, communication was re-established with one of the submersibles. The captain tells command that he's alive, for the moment, along with a few other members of the team. They took a direct hit from one of the hostile entities, taking out their engine and their tactical team. They managed to make it inside of the large vessel, in some sort of hangar complex. Command tells them to begin exploration of the interior of the vessel until extraction and or additional support are able to arrive. Specifically, there's a unique crystalline structure attached to the tail end of the vessel that they want checked out. Despite the fact that they're just a recon team, they're stranded in hostile territory 10 kilometers underwater, and they have no idea what they're heading into, orders are orders. They emerge from their submersible into the hangar, seeing countless odd aquatic vessels resembling ocean fauna on racks throughout the chamber. The recon team grabs the heavier weapons that the tactical team were carrying and continue noting large grooved channels running across the room, and some other oddities. There are trails of dark liquid along the floors, accompanied by dented metal, and they find several personal items and artifacts, including a toy humanoid figure 
with painted scales and fins along its arms and legs. They also find several small, non-functional square devices with cracked glass surfaces, and a trunk filled with waterproof clothing apparently made from algae. They eventually exit the hangar complex into a series of large hallways, which branch at unusually spaced intervals. The hallways contain ankle-deep water, and more channels running along the walls. There are a number of doors spaced at inconsistent intervals, but the team are unable to open them, as they seem to require power to do so. They find engravings carved at each branching point, along with some scattered, illegible runic script scribbled above or below the engravings. They pass a number of posters containing moving imagery, depicting a singular humanoid figure with yellow scales. Scrolling proto-Nordic runes on these posters translates into mandates and requisitions of specific individuals who were selected for a holy war against the demons, along with changing dates and long lists of names. Several of these posters were defaced with graffiti, reading, Screa sends us not to glory, but to die, and they all go to some coordinates until the beacons are lit. The coordinates seem to line up with that of another SCP, although it's been redacted from the report. They approach a branch in the hallways, with a single doorway open to their right, and three hallways in front. The water is darker to the right, with dark liquids streaking along the wall and continuing down the rightmost hallway. A humanoid hand is visible for two seconds before it vanishes around a corner. They then hear hooves against metal and splashing sounds, so they rush into the nearby room closing the door behind them except for a crack. The camera footage through the crack shows some figures approaching. Four humanoids, 1.5 meters tall, covered in warts, and with disproportionately large, twisted arms, alongside an instance of SCP-3456. 3456 are basically horrific versions of centaurs, that are quite hostile to humans and are rather durable. The fish entity from SCP-3700 would regularly spit these entities out to attack others. This instance differs due to gills on both of its human and horse portions, and fins attached to all of its limbs. It walks up to the door where the team is hidden, sniffing the air, before a loud metallic bang echoes from elsewhere. It turns, emits a high-pitched scream, and begins galloping full speed towards the sound, knocking over three of the humanoids who scramble after it. The team waits for five minutes in silence before remarking on how screwed they are. They inform Command that they have 3456 instances aboard, but Command just acknowledges it and tells them to continue their mission. This irks the team, with one saying that this feels like a suicide mission, but their captain just tells them to press on. They turn their lights on to examine the room they're in, hearing more of the 3456 screeches elsewhere, along with frog-like sounds coming from far below them. 
The room they're in is an armory and navigation hub, with a number of large bows and sharpened feather-like projectiles, along with three-pronged tridents, all of which glow dimly. There's also an elevated table-like device with a small cube slotted into it, which emits a constant dull blue luminescence. Camera footage shows inverted humanoid shadows around the room, but the team doesn't seem to notice. One of the team picks up a bow and remarks that for a civilization that has access to some sort of laser weaponry which could decimate their subs, you'd think their small arms would be a bit more explosive. Considering what they have seen so far, however, and the fact that the bows are glowing, it's likely that they are magical in nature. They discuss the idea of using these bows and projectiles on the centaurs, which are generally resistant to normal small arms fire. In the end, they each grab a bow and some ammo, and one member asks about the wart-covered humanoids. Another team member says that they are Trows, a mean type of fairy from Orkney and Shetland folklore. They remove the cube from the slot, which results in a burst of light around them, revealing a map of the interior of the ship. A green, blinking triangle shows their current location, with a large red cylinder showing the breach in the side of the vessel. Suddenly, they're interrupted by a drop of blood dripping onto a member's face, and they look up to see the hanging remains of various scaly humanoids, similar to the one from the poster. They're being held in place by amorphous layers of flesh, but slowly, the sound of tearing flesh is heard, and after a sudden snap, one of the corpses plummets down onto the table. The table lights up in response, and a number of speakers slide into place along the walls and begin to play a series of loud, rhythmic, electronic tones with large amounts of bass. One of the members begins quickly pressing various indentations on the table until the music stops. They stay in silence, peeking out of the doorway, until they hear numerous screeches from different parts of the vessel. The team exits the room and begins sprinting down the hallway, guided by the map. Soon after, one of the centaurs appears behind them, giving chase. They enter into what first appears to be a large open chamber, but is actually the breach in the side of the ship. A thick membrane of luminescent fluid prevents water from flowing into the ship, but there's still no easy way across the opening, and the centaur is close behind. They manage to smash open a panel near the door they came through, resulting in it slamming shut. They decide that they're going to have to cross the gap by walking across the scattered support beams, but they don't look completely stable. As the door behind them starts getting dented in with slams, they begin crossing the beams. It soon becomes clear that they're not going to make it across before the door breaks open, so two of the members prepare their bows. The door bursts open, revealing several of the centaurs and twelve of the wart-covered humanoids. One member fires their bow, with the projectile clocked at around 700 meters per second, which is greater than most handgun bullets. 
The projectile slices through two of the humanoids before lodging into the body of one of the centaurs, to little effect. Shortly afterward, however, the centaur bursts into flames before exploding, its internal organs and limbs scattering across the room, much to the team's delight. Using the momentary distraction of the explosion, the team continues across the beams as a dull humming sound in the distance grows steadily in volume. The humanoids quickly move across the beams, nearly catching the team, before suddenly stopping. All of the hostile entities in the room look out of the breach towards the ocean water, where numerous ominous lights are visibly approaching. Twenty mechanical constructs resembling hammerhead sharks with carved channels emitting red light fly through the membrane into the breach, firing blue streaks of light at the support beams, causing them and the entities on them to plunge into the wreckage below. More of these constructs arrive and begin blasting the rest of the entities at the far end, incinerating a number of them while the others flee. The team decides not to stick around to see if the sharks are friendly, so they leave the breach through another door. The mission can still continue, so they proceed further towards the back end of the vessel where the crystalline structure is. They're now in a section that is fully powered, although there are also signs of centaur activity here. They pass by a large number of private quarters with open doors stopping several times to recover various documents and personal effects. One is a news report, dated as 4777YSSS, later translated to be the year 1777 AD. It's titled, Home Burns in Sinchel, and reads, Last night, a residence in the Sinchel Council area caught fire, at 234050. Two individuals perished, and their child, of no more than 50 years, escaped the blaze, with impact bruising under the scales. The child sustained no burns. Magisters investigating claim the source of the fire was a fire lighter, which accidentally ignited imbibes in the basement. The child, one Screya Holgata, has been moved to a proper home. Another news article from 1850 AD discusses Queen Astrid the Kind being gifted by the Mither with a child. A third from 1854 AD, however, mentions the passing of the Queen due to mysterious illness, and they will mourn for the loss of a gentle hand to the astral beyond, but will remember her legacy in her daughter. An academic report from 1830 AD about Screya reads, Despite the tragic death of his parents and lack of access to educational resources available to other students, Screya has excelled in all aspects of his education, rising to the top of his class. Their recent victory in the trial of thaumatology over several competing students and calling forth the Mither's blessing shows great promise. Unfortunately, it seems Skreya's rapid success has emotionally impacted his competitors in an unexpected and tragic manner. The second 
third, and fourth students were found deceased, frothing at the mouth from toxic ingestion. Scraya commented he was shocked and in mourning of his fellow students. Another news report from 1875 AD concerns Princess Hega unveiling a novel design for a great feat of thaumatologic engineering. She has named it Asinja Shimor, and it will apparently be a great vehicle to rival their beloved Guthbani. A separate news article, however, states a shocking development, that Princess Haga became the first member of Triomedes' line since Irina the Fiery to visit the Outer Cylinder, something that will appease those who follow the old ways. Rumors persist that she snuck away from the palace without her father's knowledge or the approval of Median Magister Screa. She spent five days in the magnificent works, visiting and learning among those who stick to the old traditions, before staying with Grand Magister Roggenhild. Roggenhild stated that the princess has the spirit of her mother, the fire of her father, and the talent of her great-great-great-grandmother, and she will make them all proud. When asked about those who roamed the magnificent works, Princess Hega had this to say, They are a wholesome, earthly people who honor where we came from while using what we've learned to make their nomadic lifestyle easier. They understand the value of the earth and the sky and nature. I think now I understand the value of respecting that which came before us. There is something about that life. I think we've strayed too far from it, and many of us are sick and suffering for it. I would like to make it easier for all of us to experience that life once more. Living cramped in tiny boxes is not what we were meant to be. The team proceeds for another 15 minutes until the hallway begins rising at an incline, merging with all the other decks of the vehicle into a single large anomalous enclosure with no clear walls or ceilings. They see a set of doors with a diameter of 60 kilometers, composed of lead-lined steel engraved with a detailed depiction of a large humanoid woman with four yellow eyes, standing with arms open. All around this central figure are hundreds of engraved murals, several of which are much larger than others, such as one depicting a large crustacean carrying an island upon its back. A series of loud, mechanical clicks and whirs are then heard, and the door slides inwards like a spiral, opening a one-kilometer gap around the edges. The interior of the crystalline structure is visible through the gaps. The team captain radios command to tell them that they don't think they're on a crab anymore. The recon team is instructed to defensively fortify their position until additional support could arrive. Sometime later, the CTF arrived and successfully disabled the automated defenses of the vessel, sweeping through the ship and clearing out the hostels, partially thanks to the new weaponry recovered here. None of the scaly humanoids were found alive, unfortunately, but the recon team was located and recovered. After 24 hours of rest, 
They were prepped to head into the crystal structure to ascertain its nature and search for potential survivors. After passing through the gap in the door, it's quickly evident that the interior of this structure does not match the exterior. The interior contains three massive cylinders, each smaller than the last, and contained inside one another. The largest cylinder, the one the team enters into, contains an entire biosphere consisting of both land and water, with various ecosystems and a mountain chain. The team looks back to the door, noticing now that the camp beyond is not visible, because the cylinders are constantly rotating in order to simulate gravity. In front of the team is a large plain, with a river running through it, and swamp and marshlands beyond. To their right is a canal that proceeds down a slope. They decide to follow along the edge of the canal, with a drone flying above them to scout. Three hours go by before the canal merges with a river, and trace signs of occupation are visible along the riverbank. They continue on a medium-sized footpath, with the drone picking up movement in the river, showing two humanoid shapes in the water that quickly vanish. The team follows the footpath into an unusual forest, composed of several previously undocumented species of red, purple, and blue kelp. Here, they find an effigy of a human and horse skull mounted atop two sticks. Continuing on, they eventually come across a fortress composed of stone and metal built across the river. The walls are beginning to crumble, and the buildings on both sides of the river are in a state of disrepair. No individuals can be seen within the fortress, but... One of the team is thoroughly impressed by the architecture, which combined Arabic, Japanese, and Greco-Roman designs. The team decides to camp in here for the night, as the sky is getting dark. There's no sun or sky in here, but the floating cylinder above them is covered in some sort of green substance that's been giving off light, but is now growing dark. While setting up, they find a number more documents and journals, along with what appears to be a royal decree. It is translated to read, By order of Lord Screya, appointed king, the following decree is issued. All ring forts within the outer cylinder and their fane anchor are to be decommissioned. Magisters and protectors will be reassigned to other posts, or deployed in the holy war against the demons. Changes in treasury management require complete abandonment of all facilities post-haste. Below this decree is a long list of names specific to this fort, with a header reading, Deploying for the Glorious War Against the Demons. Later, one of the team approaches the captain and asks if he also saw the shadows and heard the footsteps following them, and the captain confirms that he did, and he figures they'll make their move when the team is asleep. Despite the captain's assumption, though, nothing occurs during the night, although the drone camera picks up movement in the bushes and several shadows. After waking, 
they break down camp and continue exploring, following the footpath they were on previously. The footpath eventually ends, forcing them to go through the forest, but they spot a large glass column in the distance, so they begin approaching it. Thirty minutes into the kelp forest, however, the team springs a net trap, suspending them in a large net in the air. Despite a number of attempts, the team can't free themselves or cut down the trap, and are forced to wait for whoever set it. The scout of the team, who is the one responsible for spotting traps, says that he wasn't exactly expecting a trap in the middle of the woods in a giant rotating cylinder while they're in a metal crab. Soon, movement is heard in the surrounding bushes, and several humanoid figures remove some well-constructed camouflage. The humanoids have red scales across their bodies, with collapsible fins along their arms and legs, and gills around the neck. Each of them is over two meters tall, and they begin conversing with one another in an unknown language, before one of them kicks the ground and walks away. Another of them looks to the team and speaks in Proto-Nordic. The team's linguist translates it as them asking the team who they are. He responds in the same language, stating that they are explorers and they come in peace. The humanoids look to one another and begin speaking in hushed tones, before the same individual turns back and begins speaking in English, with a thick Norwegian accent. She asks if they understand, to which the team responds, of course, that they do. The humanoids converse among one another for another five minutes, before turning back to the linguist, asking if he's the leader. The team's captain states that he's the leader, but the humanoid responds that since he doesn't speak the high language, the linguist is the leader. They're planning on taking them to their elder, who wants to speak with the humans who breached the barrier. The net is cut down, and the group is escorted at spear point through the forest. They are led into a swamp and then a narrow footpath to a spacious island among the black kelp trees. Over 100 large tent-like structures are mounted onto the backs of large stone crabs with blue channels across their surfaces. The team is led into the largest of the tents, where their weapons are taken and they are thoroughly searched. We're given a few more of the recovered documents they found in the ship, starting with a news headline from 1880 AD that reads, Skreia rises to Finlor in wake of High Magistrate Finlor Helgord's death. A morbituary article from 1885 details the death of King Aski, with Skreia appointed as steward. Workers present at the time of the king's collapse reported significant distress and foam emanating from his mouth, although no foul play is suspected due to his recent depressive temperament and public opinion downturns. Since the princess is under 200 years old, a steward would need to be appointed in her stead. After a vote among the magister's council, projections indicated that young Skreia would not be appointed steward, but 
a number of magisters whose votes were uncertain ended up voting in favor of Screya. All of them refused to comment on their votes. Following the vote, Screya stated that he is honored that the wise council of magisters have chosen to nominate him for the position of steward. Clearly, he is the most qualified candidate for the position, and he promises as steward to strive to improve the lives of all their citizens, and to make progress towards expanding fin-folk influence beyond their sacred home. Another news article, from two years later, mentions that the princess is the first royal family member to visit Guthbani in three generations, since the end of the Human Territory Wars. Guthbani is apparently the name for a massive aquatic vessel, although it's unclear if it's the one the Foundation is currently in. The princess asked of Steward Screya that resources be allocated to refurbish and improve the defenses of Guthbani, but a notice of rejection was issued by the steward's office without further comment. A news article from 1889 discusses the shocking move by the steward's office to dissolve the magister's council and reform it, kicking out a significant number of the old magisters who had served for several hundred years. The princess immediately lodged protests against the decision, citing it as an abuse of the steward's power and circumventing the will of the meritocracy. She received no response. Finally, another news article from the same year shows that the princess perished in a tragic fire that occurred in the royal archives late at night. The princess's remains could not be located after the compound burned to the ground, and with her death, the Triomedes line ends. The article finishes by stating that the Finfolk's future remains uncertain. Back in the cylinder, the entire recon team enters into the large tent at Spearpoint, with the tent appearing to be empty until an elderly Finfolk woman with black scales emerges from a kitchenette with a pot made from a large gastropod shell. She tells one of the Finfolk, Brynhild, to lower their spears, as these are not enemies, but honored guests. They are the first humans to set foot in Guthbani, which answers that question. The spears are lowered, and the matriarch pours liquid from her pot into six cups, while the team's linguist informs the others that they are apparently honored guests. The matriarch sets the tray of drinks in front of them, along with a bowl of what seems to be a type of candy. She speaks English in a thick Norwegian accent, welcoming them to their home, and invites them to drink the tea and eat the sweets. The team all tries both, with minor signs of distress noted among all of them but one, while the matriarch cackles. She seats herself upon a floating chair, and says that both of them have both questions and answers for each other, as dark things are afoot, things that have not occurred since her great-grandmother's time. 
she confirms that the linguist of the team speaks the high language, and says that she shall weave a tapestry for his human ears in the high language. But first, she has some questions. She asks why they've come to Guthbani, to which he responds that they're here to explore, as the Foundation has apparently been studying Finfolk history and technology on the surface for the last 100 years, but they finally stumbled upon their home. She asks if they understand the Finfolk technology, to which the linguist says that he's not privy to a lot of those details, but they believe so. The matriarch cackles again and slaps her knee, stating that it only took humans 5,000 years, and apparently someone named Grinhold owes her 500 silver. She then asks if Guthbani is damaged, and the linguist tells her that it's quite heavily damaged. She sighs and says that that explains the demons and the silence from the great sprawl. The linguist asks who she is, and she replies that she's Roggenhild the Mad, former vice magister to the royal house of Triomedes, and the first of the great thaumatologists to be purged from the palace by him, spitting on the floor in disgust. He then asks how they built Guthbani, to which Roggenhild says that Guthbani was not built, but instead she was born. She sits back and closes her eyes as the lighting in the room darkens and thousands of pinpoints of light rise into the air, spinning and twisting into shapes and discernible forms, humanoid shapes, places, times, and even other anomalies. She says that in the time before time, they lived as a scattered people across many shores. They loved traded, and fished, and all was well aboard their ancestral home, Hildeland, the isle of the shimmering crystal city. The lights shift, depicting a large island moving and floating above calm ocean waters, an obscured large organism beneath the surface directing its movement. The calm water abruptly becomes violent, tall waves crashing onto the island's shores, the lights beneath the surface shift in tone and color. A large humanoid hand, with red, white, and purple luminescence, rises from below and grips the island, lifting it clear of the waters and crushing it between its fingers. She continues, stating that from the depths of slumber, the tyrant awoke and rose from the deeps. In a single day and night, he smote their home betwixt his fingers, and they were left without direction. Ten thousand souls lost to the howling night. The lights shift and depict two humanoids, one a finfolk with golden scales, while the other is covered in green, blue, yellow, and pink luminescent shifting tattoos, with four yellow eyes upon her face. For several seconds they are alone, walking through various terrains as the lights shift. Then an increasing number of finfolk are around them. Thousands of lights depict the finfolk building, growing, and feeding a great machine. 
Roggenhild says that from the ashes of their home's destruction, a daughter came forth. The last matriarch's daughter, Triomedes, set forth under the Orcadian sky and took visit, one by one, with the scattered tribes, bringing them together through five brutal trials. She swore upon herself a sacred vow to seal away the terrible tyrant, and in return was rewarded with great knowledge of a powerful machine, Guthbani. SCP-4700 is shown completed, rising from the ground, and an enormous column of light fills the room, emanating from its primary weapon. The lights shift once more to an island of fire and ice. Triomedes is there, with the Finfolk, then humans, then men made from cogs, then men made of indiscriminate flesh, then men made from plants. The lights shift once more to what is now the Ring of Brodgar, a circle of stones in Orkney. Roggenhills says that in the fires of Garthar, a last desperate alliance was forged between Finn, man, machine, flesh, and plant. Triomedes led all to the homeland's cloudy skies and barren hills, and there we waited. The lights show Guthbani rising from a lake and engaging a massive humanoid figure, 20 kilometers tall, which is related to another SCP-3703. The combined groups of humanoids, meanwhile, are assaulted by varying anomalies. A large humanoid approaches and is hit by Guthbani's primary weapon, while a second, with four yellow eyes, leaps from the lake and strikes the first with a massive sword, impaling it. The lights fade to depictions of hundreds of monolithic structures. Roggenhill says that on the shores of Old Orkney, the tyrant was struck down, and so began the first of the great sealing wars wherein they trapped those ancient evil things in rock and stone. The lights fade, and the room is silent for thirty seconds, before Roggenhild cackles again. She says that that's the legend her mother gave her when she was a little girl. Humans have lost so much of their own history, and they just burnt the oldest of theirs, so who knows if it's true. The linguist asks why they didn't just stay in Orkney, or other parts of the world, to which Roggenhild responds that humans drove them into the sea, as even alliances can crumble. He then asks about the person with four yellow eyes, which leads to two minutes of silence as the finfolk around the tent look between one another. They are interrupted by a finfolk rushing into the tent and exclaiming that the city is in flames and Nogalevi are everywhere. The tent erupts into various voices until Roggenhild silences them, telling the messenger to explain more. He says that both Nogalevi and Trows are in the streets and any survivors are holed up in the palace. Five minutes of silence go by before Roggenhild turns to the recon team and says that they lied about being just explorers. The linguist says that 
They are with an international organization that contains and protects mankind against anomalies, a job that the Finfolk once did long ago. The Nogalevi are clearly the centaurs, and Roggenhild says that they do not have the numbers to fight them. She tells the messenger to go across every river, lake, and sea, and to rouse those who remember the old ways. She then says to the linguist that once more they find themselves in desperation turning to the human's blood-stained hands for aid. The linguist hesitates and says that he can't promise Command will jump to help, but they'll try to make it happen. We're given a few more articles recovered from the ship, including a newspaper headline from 1899 stating that policy changes made by King Screya has resulted in growing unrest among the Home Guard and former magisters. The personal journal of the commanding officer of Guthbani has an entry from 1900 that reads, He's done what we all feared the moment we heard of Hega's death in the blazes. Purges. The rat-wolf-bastard announced it a few weeks ago with no warning. Favored officers started rounding people up. Good soldiers. Good people who have defended our home for hundreds of years. Forced at spear point onto transports and capital ships and sent off into the depths. The first night, they got most of us. Most of the resistance stripped out parts from the vehicles, disabled the weaponry. I watched magisters do it, at spear point. Every day, more are shipped out, indiscriminately, all under the guise of fighting the demons, the nogs and the worms and the trows. It's not a war they're fighting. It's a massacre. Mither, help us. Lastly, another news headline from 1950 AD states that 50 years of success in the war have cleared land for colonization. Civilians and magisters have been selected for colonizing the world above, and they'll live alongside humans once more. Obviously, something went wrong there. After the recon team met with Roggenhild, the decision to lend aid to the Finfolk went up to the O5 Council. After a majority vote, the Council approved Operation Skies of Orcadia, involving the rescue and recovery of all surviving Finfolk, the clearing out of the crystalline structure of all hostile entities, and to establish and ascertain the level of cooperation of the surviving Finfolk leaders. The Foundation is deploying two task forces, along with 600 functional and restored Finfolk aquatic vessels, and they are joined by 5,000 Finfolk nomads. The situation concerns the innermost cylinder of the structure the surface of which is covered with a large urban environment housing millions of finfolk. The recon team is along for the ride as well, 
with their goal being to mainly assist in the rescue of any trapped finfolk in the area. They emerge onto the cylinder in a water highway, utilizing their submersibles, before exiting out onto a tiled path. In all directions is a large urban environment of combined Greco-Roman, Japanese, and Arabic architecture. Skyscrapers are visible in the distance, although smoke obscures most of the sky. The operation commences as the combined foundation and finfolk operatives begin sweeping into the city. Centaur vocalizations are heard in all directions, as the combat operatives of the group begin engaging them. The recon team, and a single squad of finfolk consisting of members of the tribe that captured them, advance further into the ruined city. They're told that air support is inbound, and despite one of the team asking how they are possibly getting air units in here, another just says to be glad that they are. They unfortunately bump into a single 30 meter tall centaur, with hundreds of finfolk corpses scattered around it. It notices the team, and emits a single vocalization before charging at them, forcing the team to open fire. Thankfully, the team is equipped with the finfolk bow weapons, and after a number of shots hit, it promptly explodes, showering the team with gore. As the recon team prepares to move forward, they're stopped by the finfolk, who state that they're not done yet. The remnants of the centaur begin to undulate and coalesce back together into twenty smaller creatures. Three more thirty-meter-tall centaurs turn the corner into view, accompanied by a large number of the wart-covered humanoids, prompting the team to declare a retreat. Sadly, Two more centaurs and accompanying humanoids block the path behind them. The finfolk then form a protective circle around the recon team, telling them that Roggenhild requested the team be protected at all costs. The team is armed with the bows and the finfolk with tridents, and they plan on taking out as many of the enemies as they can. The hostile entities all charge in at them, and they open fire. It's looking pretty dire for them, but in traditional epic fashion, the air support swoops in, consisting of 78 aerial finfolk vessels, piloted by CTF Delta-7. The vehicles open fire on the hostiles, instantly vaporizing the centaurs and many of the humanoids. The remainder of the enemies breach the circle, but thanks to the finfolk's advanced weaponry, they are managing to hold them off. The air support does a second sweep, taking more of the hostiles out, but one of the finfolk dies to a smaller centaur. The air support's third pass causes the hostiles to break ranks and begin to flee, although the air support gives chase. The recon team and finfolk continue towards the large palace complex, the way now clear thanks to air support. They end up finding thousands of finfolk hiding in the complex, and an evacuation begins. In the dungeons beneath the complex, they find a number of high-ranking political opponents of the previous regime as prisoners. 
One of the recon team asks about a person-sized pile of sand next to a giant statue, and they're informed that that is what's left of Skreya. This is his punishment for his sins, and it turns out that Skreya is actually another SCP known to the Foundation, 3702. Skreya is forced to traverse an extremely hot section of desert in Libya every day towards an oasis, but before reaching it, he will demanifest and remanifest back where he started the next day. Runes on his chest and back translate to, I walk through endless sands without food, water, or tongue. None shall help me. This is the price of my careless greed. So it shall always be, by the Mither's will. The Foundation originally tried to help the individual to no avail, but after learning of his true identity and as part of their treaty with the Finfolk, they have stopped trying. The last Finfolk to emerge from the palace is an emaciated woman with golden scales and hair. She looks to the crowd of Finfolk in front of her, who begin bowing down to her. This is apparently Princess Hega, now Queen Hega, who was not killed in a fire as previously believed, but was rather imprisoned. While all seems well and good now, the Finn folk saved, the Foundation unfortunately has another problem. There's a large, hostile entity capable of flight sitting on top of the 20-kilometer-tall humanoid entity inside of the central cylinder. They've already lost two squads trying to take it out, and it's attempting to breach the containment field containing the humanoid entity. The recon team asks what would happen if it breaches the chamber, and Queen Hega quietly says that the cylinders would stop spinning, which would be quite bad. The Royal Guard informs them that there are fish in the hangar, meaning some aerial vehicles, and they prepare to go board them. The Queen then says that she's going with, and despite the recon captain trying to talk her out of it, she insists. They board the vehicles and take to the skies, where they are joined by another squad of Finfolk, including Roggenhild. They breach the cloud layer, flying into a vast, hollow space at the center of the cylinder, where a massive diamond enclosure contains the humanoid entity connected to a vast series of tubes. Sitting on top of the enclosure is a 50-meter-long wyvern, covered in thick scales. As they approach, the wyvern emits a loud vocalization and opens its mouth, causing large ice fragments to manifest in the air and propel towards the group. They scatter into evasive maneuvers, only to be met by bolts of electric thaumatology forcing them into spins and dives to avoid being hit. Roggenhild begins cackling as she remains in place, the energy glancing off an invisible bubble around her. The clouds beneath her begin swirling and rise through the air as she chants in Proto-Nordic. 
The wyvern continues to slam its tail into the enclosure, but Roggenhild concentrates the clouds and transmutes them into green thaumatologic fire, launching it at the wyvern to seemingly no effect. The group begins attacking the wyvern with their vehicle's weaponry, punching holes into its flesh and causing it to roar in pain, but its body regenerates the damage. It swings its tail towards the group, causing them to scatter again, managing to connect with one of the finfolk, instantly killing them. The damaged flesh on the wyvern heals completely before bulging out and bursting, releasing dozens of smaller wyverns that begin chasing the team. Roggenhild calls the wyvern Stolwold and insults it before cackling once again directing her magic fire to wipe out the smaller wyverns. Between the fire and the rest of the group working together, they manage to take out all of the small wyverns, losing one more finfolk in the process. The recon team then dives towards the large wyvern, bombarding it as it roars in distress. Unfortunately, this damage also regenerates and releases hundreds more of the small wyverns, taking out two more finfolk in the process. The recon team laments that they don't have the firepower to take this thing down, and it's going to breach the containment enclosure any second. Queen Hega then begins praying, saying that only a titan of the deep may bring ruin to the great worms of Stur, for the mightiest of fish may only unleash pestilence upon the earth. A humming sound then fills the air beneath the recon team members as they continue to dodge the small wyverns. From the cloud, a beam of light emerges, accompanied by a mechanical roar. A large mechanical form emerges as the beam of light severs the wyvern's tail with a loud concussive blast, and it does not regenerate. Filled with renewed hope, the recon team and surviving finfolk make another run on the wyvern, filling it with holes and severing its wings. The large mechanical shape comes into view, resembling a massive cuttlefish, and its primary weapon fires again. With no wings to escape with, it's forced to take the blast head-on and is instantly vaporized. In the aftermath, the evacuations were completed, with just under 56,000 finfolk successfully evacuated out of the cylinders and back into the main portion of Guthbani. It took them another 15 days to clear out all three cylinders of hostile entities, and before long, the Finfolk Foundation Cooperative Agreement was signed, with repairs on the vehicle beginning immediately. Following five years of repair work, power and functionality was restored to Guthbani, with Queen Hega awarded the privilege of reactivating the vehicle. After activation, the vehicle emits a mechanical roar and shifts as it begins righting itself. The main weapon is still offline, and there are multiple shortages in some of the emplacements. The vehicle's legs are fully functioning, but the projectile repulsion systems aren't. The intangibility and invisibility systems are online, but they prove unable to maintain either state. As they begin moving the vehicle around in slow circles, 
they pick up a large sonar contact approaching them. It turns out to be the second entity from SCP-3700, the massive fish, which Hega refers to as the Great Worm of Stor. They begin launching all support craft and firing every weapon they have at it, hoping that they can get their primary weapon online sooner rather than later. A variety of weaponry hits the fish, knocking it slightly off course and causing it to vocalize in distress. The damage causes it to careen straight into Guthbani, toppling it onto its side before the entity crashes into the ocean floor. Guthbani writes itself, now with a large dent in its armor, and it continues to fire on the entity. The smaller support ships also begin firing on it, managing to evade the swinging tail of the creature. They've managed to get the primary weapon to charge, but it won't go above 30%, and the circuits aren't completely repaired, so if they fire it more than two or three times, they risk blowing up the entire vehicle. As the entity prepares to breathe fire from its mouth, several of the support vehicles strike it, causing it to release its breath on itself and causing additional damage. The Foundation takes the chance to fire the primary weapon. The barrel of the primary weapon begins to glow, and water surrounding it begins to boil. The vehicle emits a mechanical roar, and an enormous column of light flies forth, pushing the entire vehicle backward as the beam impacts the ocean floor. All of the recording devices are obscured by five seconds of bright light, and water rushes in to fill the sudden empty space caused by the blast, an enormous crater left in the ocean floor. Imagine what full power would have done. The shot wasn't dead on the entity, however, but it still takes heavy damage from the impacting blast. It swipes the support vessels near it with its tail and begins charging towards Guthbani. They'll need 30 seconds to charge the weapon again, so they instead activate the vehicle's claws. The crab proceeds to dodge the creature's charge, grab its tail, and slices part of it off. It then slams the fish down into the sand and discharges an electrical burst from the claws into it. Despite the extensive damage, it manages to slip free and wrap its body around the vehicle, locking its jaw onto Guthbani's outer armor. It begins to squeeze, and the vehicle is unable to grab it with its claws. Support vehicles attempt to attack the fish, but are beaten back by both the creature's tentacles and its breathing fire. The primary weapon is charged again, but they don't have any sort of shot on it. Its squeezing is starting to cause several hull breaches, and it pulls the vehicle down to the sand. Suddenly, a large humanoid hand emerges from the seabed and grabs the fish by its tail, pulling it off of Guthbani and begins slamming it into the ground. The fish wraps itself around the humanoid arm, causing an enormous tremor across the ocean floor. Guthbani rights itself, and they fire the primary weapon again. The shot manages to barely avoid hitting the humanoid arm, but hits the fish directly, incinerating it completely. A humanoid figure, 
covered in pink, yellow, green, and blue luminescent markings, and possessing four yellow eyes upon its otherwise human face, emerges from the seabed. It stretches in an upward motion, nursing the arm which suffered indirect damage, before pausing and surveying the surrounding area. It spots Guthbani and leans forward, patting the vehicle's head before speaking briefly in Proto-Nordic. After surveying the surrounding area once more, it stands and then dissolves into large quantities of kelp which fall to the ocean floor. Suddenly, the Foundation picks up thousands of sonar contacts surrounding them, revealed to be nearly 10,000 aquatic vessels containing more than 200,000 surviving finfolk. They were apparently instantly transported here following the humanoid entity's departure. The words that it spoke before departing were later translated as, I wake from my deep slumber to find you in ruins. Do not worry. Do not fret. I shall bring home those who were exiled. Do not worry. Do not panic. Terran wakens in the deeps. Do not worry. For I am woken, and my love is endless. So, that all ended up a bit more like Pacific Rim than our usual SCP fare, but a whole lot happened throughout this SCP. To summarize, the Finfolk long, long ago were at war with some massive entities, and they only won due to a great alliance between themselves, humans, and what presumably were the Mechanites, the Sarkites, and the Davites. They were all aided by another large humanoid, the one with four yellow eyes, named Mither. The enemy entities weren't actually defeated, but were instead sealed away into large diamond enclosures contained inside of various massive aquatic vessels, one of which is Guthbani. The line of the Finfolk leader continued, until King Aski and Queen Astrid. A young orphan, Skreya, quickly rose to the ranks of Finfolk government, partially due to his talented mind, and partially due to his willingness to do whatever it took to succeed. Queen Astrid passed only a few years after giving birth to her only child, Princess Hega. Hega also proved to be quite talented, designing a new aquatic vehicle and looking to make quite a capable queen, compassionate enough to do things that Finfolk hadn't done in a long time. After the king died under somewhat mysterious circumstances, Skreya was appointed as the steward, essentially the acting king until Hega came of age. Skreya quickly set about abusing his power to cement his leadership, and Hega clashed with him over policy decisions before she allegedly perished in a tragic fire. Skreya's lust for power and wealth continued to grow as he became the actual king, utilizing the Finfolk's holy war against their enemies to his own advantage, purging the civilization of any dissenters. Eventually, though, his greed and madness caught up with him, and he was somehow 
exiled from the sea, forced to suffer an eternity of anomalous torture in a desert. Sometime later, Guthbani was attacked by the large fish entity, who had recently grown to massive size thanks to the Foundation's intervention. The fish punched a huge hole into the vehicle's side and released a large number of hostile entities inside of it, wiping out many of the finfolk aside from those hiding in the cylinders. After causing the deaths of both of the 3700 entities, the Foundation was alerted of Guthbani's existence partially thanks to the sudden appearance of four large yellow orbs underwater, the eyes of the finfolk goddess Mither. The rest is, of course, history. Many aspects of this SCP and associated SCPs are all connected to Orcadian mythology, a real-world mythology related to the Orkney Islands. Mither is a mythical being that continually battles with her arch-enemy Terran, and she confines the horse-like demon Nakalavi to the ocean depths. Within the SCP universe, this is all connected to a relatively small canon known as the Seas of Orcadia. Perhaps the most intriguing part of this entire article is the mention of a short-lived alliance between many of the more disparate groups in the SCP universe, like the Mechanites and Sarkites. Whether we'll hear more about the Finfolk in the future is uncertain, but it's not a huge surprise that they prefer to sit at the bottom of the oceans for now, and avoid contact with humans, considering how much trouble we tend to bring. 